this is Russ Winter from the Techie Geek Podcast. Last evening, September 5th, 2012, Eric S. Raymond gave a 90-minute talk at the Central Philadelphia Linux User Group. I'm happy to present that recording to you now. Enjoy. Tonight's speaker, Eric Raymond, talking about Linux. Hello, everybody. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, on the email list, a couple hours ago, they asked me, uh, what's the topic for tonight, Eric? And my reply was, (laughs) topic? What topic? You shall all be dazed victims of my disconnected ravings. So, Marty, that's what you're in for. Um, I don't really, I, I don't really give talks with set subjects anymore because I prefer to kind of jam with my audience. Uh, I take questions at any time, and I may start with something to sort of seed the discussion, and then just see where the, the, the audience wants to take that. There are a couple things I thought you might be interested in hearing about that I've been, I've been thinking about lately. One is, uh, oh, uh, before I launch into this rant, I should find out, how many of you read my blog? Okay, only three people in the audience, so this won't be duplicative for too many of you. Um, one thing I've been thinking about recently is, um, I was having an RSC discussion with a friend of mine uh, last week, and... Uh, she was talking about cha- fixing and changing some practices at a development shop she run into where they were, uh, they were doing custom hardware, you know, things like hearing aids and other hearing aids and other assistive devices for special needs children. She was interviewing there and she said she was appalled by the uh, not exactly sloppy but rather um, dated and inefficient practices that the software shop had. And she was asking me for advice on um, how you deal with situations where a, a vendor has given you a piece of software and you're expected to write control software. Uh, they've given you a piece of hardware, like a hearing aid, and you're expected to write control software for it, but the documentation is the kind of documentation that you usually get from vendors, which is to say, scanty, ambiguous, and tending to stop exactly where things get interesting. So she said, what do you do about that situation other than, uh, well, sort of uh, throw inputs at it and see how it responds? And, uh, and I said, well, you have to do that. But the important thing not to do in that situation is to tangle the process of reverse engineering the device up with writing production software. If you try to do both things at once, bad things will happen. Here's the specific bad thing that will happen. You'll end up, um, uh, you'll end up uh, halfway to three-quarters of the way reverse engineering the device. But the things that you learn from it uh, will get embodied in code in your application that you'll forever afterwards be terrified of changing because you won't know when changing it will break some undocumented assumption. This is not a recipe for happiness. In fact, it's a recipe for brittle, buggy software. And I said, the way you fix that is by writing down your assumptions about the hardware before you write the code. And I pointed her as an example of something I wrote a while back. Uh, a lot of you probably know I, I, I made a project called GPSD, which is all about uh, managing navigational sensors. One of the kinds of things that we manage are marine AIS radios, which are these specialized packet radios that, uh, that they have on ships that broadcast where I'm going, how fast I'm going there, weather conditions, things like that. 
Um, and the standards for um, AIS are to say the least opaque. They're scattered uh, across six different documents written in impenetrable standards ease. And it is known that act receivers and, uh, and transmitters in the field don't behave exactly like the standards. So before trying to write a driver for this thing, I decided that I, what I was going to do was plunder all of the information on the net uh, about how AIS is supposed to behave and how it actually behaves. And I ended up writing a document, which you can find on the web, called uh, AIVDM, AIVDM, AIVDO Protocol Decoding which is all about what really happens in the real world when you listen to an AIS device. And uh, I pointed her at this, and I described it as a specification, but then I realized that there's a problem with calling a thing like this a specification. The problem is if you say, if you say specification to a programmer, often they're going to go from that to kind of, they're going to assume you're talking about the kind of stupid specification that you get in waterfall model jobs that's completely out of contact with reality. Whereas the point of a document like this is to be in contact with reality. So I came up with a better term for it, and this is what I posted about it. I called it a ground truth document. The difference between a ground truth document and a speculation, uh, speculation <laughs> and a specification is that ground truth documents only describe what is. They talk about the present. They don't have plans in them. They don't have wishes in them. They don't have hopes. They don't have, this is what may be implemented next week or next year. They just describe what is words at all. This is an invaluable technique uh, when you are reverse engineering hardware. The first thing to do is write a ground truth document. Once you have that, then you start coding your actual uh, control or monitoring interface. And of course, you know, you're going to find out more things uh, as you, uh, as you uh, refine the interface. But the point is, you should have a good idea of what that thing is doing that is well separated from any specifications, any hopes, dreams, or plans before you start writing production code. Later, I find out, found out that there's a term for this in the construction industry. They talk about the difference between plans and as-built documents, which describe what was actually built. Not quite the same concept, but close. There's also a fairly close concept called an engineer's notebook, which if you are a certified engineer with a bond, you're actually required to be So there's a record of your thoughts and calculations. That's not quite the same either, because that's a record of an individual person's thought, whereas a ground truth document is about a particular thing that people are analyzing, and they have multiple contributors, in fact, in late stages it often does. So the first thing I want to say is uh, this is a good practice for you to, uh, to do if you're not already doing it. I had several people respond on, on my blog and on Google Plus with, wow, finally, I have a name for something that I have done before and that was a good idea. Now we go to the second level of the instruction, which is culture hacking. Um, by, uh, by putting out the term and the concept of a ground truth document and, uh, and, and how it differs from the specification, I gave programmers a slightly different way to think about their practice. And I gave them a way to advocate doing the kind of clean practice that is clear 
that they couldn't really describe before. This is culture hacking. And this is, in the small, uh, the sort of thing that the open source movement is in the large. So one of the things I wanted to uh, put out there for you is that if you guys want to learn how to do that sort of thing, if any of you are aspiring culture hackers, start small. Um, find a practice that's good, uh, that, uh, that, that, that is valuable for software development, and doesn't have a name, and give it one. So uh, that's my first jumping off point for tonight. Anybody have any questions or comments about that? Okay. You, you know, you talked about specifications. Specifications and, to a certain extent, a number of standards are marketing concepts. They're, yes. they're that's part really of the a mess in many ways. And sometimes they're contradictory. You know, they're just different. A committee where uh, different people have different wishes on the committee. And you are having a typical programmer's reaction to the term specification, which is why I didn't want to call this thing a specification. That's exactly why the term ground truth document is valuable. Now, a good example, I think, of a project that's taken place is Samba. I think they've done a lot of ground truth. Ground truth document, <laughs> uh, documentation of SMB. Yes, that is excellent example. Very excellent. Yeah, of course, this is a very old practice. My father, who was in military intelligence in World War II, was helping to disassemble the first captured kamikaze plane, a zero with a 500-pound bomb strapped to the bottom of it. And he had his engineer, his demolitions expert, had to, he went through the manual because he could read Japanese, and the demolitions expert then disassembled step-by-step step the bomb attempting to determine the ground truth of the kamikaze assembly. <laughs> Which differed from what was in the manual. Very much. There was a very awkward moment in the reading because formal Japanese uses the double negative in the opposite sense of informal Japanese. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> turn, don't turn opposite to left. Could have been read one way or the other. Oh dear. When you're disassembling a bomb, I can see where that would be an issue. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and at a certain point, my father's area of responsibility was done. And he said to his demolitions expert, um, you know, if it's all the same to you, I'd like to just retire behind that wall over there to achieve a more comprehensive view of your excellence. <laughs> and after the demolitions engineer had finish, he said, you know, this is extremely interesting the way they put this together and so forth, and they're just using TNT for the explosive, which is quite risky. And my father said, how do you know it's TNT? And the guy said, by the taste, would you like a spoonful? <laughs> right. So, was it formal or informal? I don't remember which way it went now, but he obviously got it right. I wouldn't be here. That's a great story. Um, anything else about that? Someday you too may have to have a culture. This is how. Okay, um, second topic, the perils of over-engineering. Um, how many of you have used CIA, the notification service? How many of you know what it is? <laughs> Wow, it doesn't seem to be well known here. CIA is actually a fairly nifty concept. But what you do 
is you can have a hook in a version control system for your project. And whenever you do a commit, the hook ships an RPC, uh, XML RPC notification off to the CIA server. And the CIA server then takes the commit metadata and the message and makes a digest of it and echoes that digest in the IRC channel of your choice. Why is this useful? Well, nowadays, uh, I mean, email is so old school. Uh, many projects nowadays have IRC channels where the developers hang out and talk about the development process in real time. And it's really useful if your project has an IRC channel to arrange that all the, the commit stream of the project is part of the conversation. So instead of you know, some, somebody says, oh, there's a problem in module foo, and I think this is the way it can be fixed. I can be on that channel and say, I'm looking into it, and then I go off and I fix it, and I do the commit, and instead of me, me having to say it's done, he sees the commit with the commit comment. This is great. And it's wonderful. I really like it. I use it on all the projects that I lead. Uh, recently, however, I made the mistake of looking at how it's actually implemented. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, so the more astute among you may be wondering why this kind of service goes through a central server at all. We'll get back to that point. Uh, I went and looked at how it's implemented because one of the things about CIA is that it's notoriously flaky. It's probably outages. And, uh, it'll, it'll go down for a while and then we'll come back up and you get a flood of really old notifications showing up on your channel. Nobody's ever quite sure why most people just live with it. Um, I looked into it, and it turns out that the implementation of CIA is horrifying. I mean, truly horrifying. It is a mixture that was, uh, they started out coding it in uh, a custom web framework, and then uh, recoded uh, most of it, but not all of it, in Twisted, and then changed their minds and recoded most, but not all of that in Django. Three different web frameworks doing slightly different but somewhat overlapping tasks. I'm told by people who have looked at the code uh, mostly that the individual subsystems inside of Django and Twisted and the custom web framework aren't too bad, actually, but the interactions between them are messy and leaky. Uh, on top of that, the the system is, it's really complex. Some of the robots in it are written in, uh, most of it's written in Python, but some of the robots that actually do the posting to IRC servers are written in Erlang. Okay. Uh, um, I mean, you know, not to say that Erlang is necessarily a bad language, but it is kind of obscure and probably overkill for something like this. And um, anytime you get a, a mixture of languages on the project, there tend to be problems at the interfaces between them, and there certainly are here. Um, and on top of that, the development practices were just plain sloppy. Like, I found out um, the person who is currently the maintainer of the software uh, casually dropped on the channel the news that he had not bothered to actually sync the live instance back to the Google code repository that supposedly holds the code. So you can't check out the Google code repository and get a running instance. And somebody else had been wondering on the channel about this, what's going on here? I check out the Google code instance and it has syntax errors. Well, now you know why. There are fixes in the live interface that never got propagated back to the repository. Now, I 
when I found this out, my hair stood on end and I more or less shamed the maintainer into fixing this. Well, or at least he claims he fixed it. Uh, past performance doesn't give me a lot of confidence about this. So, okay, so it's a shambles. It's horrible. Um, beyond that, though, there are highly questionable things about the design. I think at least highly questionable from my point of view. One is the huge amount of code that is dedicated to making pretty reports that are visible along the way. You're a message relay service. Why do you think that the web wants to see detailed timelines of commits on every project? That's what the repositories are for. Uh, and why do you think it wants to see statistics on density of commits by particular authors? What's the need for this? What's the market for this? Your message relay service, where is all this Chrome coming from? Over-engineering is bad because, uh, I, I mean, it's, the, the implementation looks like code that has collapsed under its own weight. It's basically a, a rubble pile that's gradually shifting towards complete non-functionality. This is what happens when you overburden a project with features that don't really need. So um, I started thinking uh, and, and saying, okay, if, I, if I'm starting from a clean sheet, how would I implement uh, what, what CIA is doing? Oh, and by the way, one other problem with it, everything going through one server? Okay, hands up, anybody who sees what the problem with this is. Okay, yeah, we can generalize this. Single systems that have single points of critical failure, bad. Decentralization, multiple pathways, and robustness, good. As internet engineers, we are supposed to know this. However, we seem to occasionally forget. So I, I started thinking, how would you do this in a properly decentralized, properly lightweight way? And I started, sat down and I started thinking, and I started coding. So anybody want to guess approximately how many lines it took me to duplicate the uh, 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 CIA's functionality of Take the commit and relink it to an IRC server. Three hundred. Thousand lines. Oh, that's way too high. Three hundred. Uh, Not even four hundred. Very good. Very good. Uh, this project, which I call Urker, currently clocks in at three hundred and sixty-one lines of playbook. Wow. Okay. This is compared to uncounted thousands of lines and psychomatic complexity that would make your head explode <laughs> in CIA. Now, I am not call telling it you this. What, what, what was that? Should have called it MI7. <laughs> <laughs> I might do that yet. <laughs> I, I, was, I was mentally canvassing names of rival spy organizations. KGB. <laughs> no, no, they're evil. I don't, I don't want their name on my stuff. Um, um, so, um, no, I, I, I mean, I, it's obvious why I called it Berkner, right? Um, so I, I put out this story, you know, not to, like, make some claim about me, like, being a super wizard coder, because, in fact, this was not a very difficult job, okay? Right, once I knew what the program had to do, writing it, and writing it to be that small wasn't difficult. The difficult part was adjusting my focus 
so that I honed in on what was actually necessary to do, as opposed to all the crummy crap that CIA is surrounded with. Um, and I nearly went off course. I nearly fell off the wagon because the point at which I realized one of the things that really puzzled me was why, why, why XML RPC? That's kind of heavyweight. Why are the plans for this thing shipping, shipping a huge XML RPC message to the server, which is then digesting it into the actual test, text that it ships to IRC? My, my first thought was, well, wait, why is the server doing the statistics gathering at all? Couldn't you, there's a, a channel called commits where CIA dumps every commit that passes through it. So you're effectively seeing its entire data stream. So if you wanted to write something that, uh, that does statistics gathering, my first thought was, why have that be in the transmission path at all? Why isn't it just a bot that's watching the commits channel? I mean, duh. You've already aggregated the stream. Stupid. On the output side, so you actually see reality. There's a theme developing here, isn't there? Um, so, and then I realized, oh, wait a second, there's a problem with that. IRC has a 510 character message limit, which means that you can't, you can't send all of the commit metadata to a single, uh, uh, to a single IRC message line. Uh, instead, the, uh, and the, the, the stats generators inside CIA are working on this, this full representation that they got from the XML RPC object, and they're just sort of digesting that and shipping that to IRC. And when I realized that, I said, well, well maybe, I, maybe XML RPC made sense here after all. And I started sketching a design for a, another daemon, an auxiliary daemon, that would take the XML RPC objects, do stats gathering, and then pass, uh, and then digest that and pass a request to my first daemon, which would do the actual IRC proposal. Better separation of function than, than, than CIA has right now. And then I, then I slapped myself in the head and came to my senses. Because if you actually look at commits, you'll see the, the, at the stream as it goes by on the commits channel, you'll see that most um, commit messages are very short and touch very few files. Most of them will, in fact, fit inside the, the 510 uh, uh, character limit. Uh, and so I started thinking instead about reduction rules uh, that, uh, that uh, could be used. Uh, what was that? Is that why they have like a web interface to it for messages that are greater than the uh, yeah, and that's also limit? And that's also why when you see a CIA notification, it typically has a URL at the end where you can go to see the, the full embedded, the full embedded message. But I, I slapped myself in the head and I realized, no, I'm falling into the same trap as the CIA designers. The truth is, uh, for most cases, um, you can drop out the file names and, and, uh, and nobody will get hurt. Uh, and you can truncate the commit message to 510 bytes, and that's enough for human beings, especially if they have a pointer to the original commit in their repository. Uh, the point is, that by, 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 agree, by deciding that it was okay not to handle the 1% case, I reduced the complexity of the entire system by a factor of three or four, and that was probably a good trade-off. We need to be thinking about that more often. Sometimes there are things that you can do but should not. So this is my cautionary tale about the perils of over-engineering. 
If slogan cut corners proudly. Cut corners proudly. That's good. Uh, I like that. Where'd you get that from? I, I don't remember. It'll come back to me. Yeah. Um, and when in doubt, use brute force. Uh, it was a fun little demon to write. It's got the, uh, well, it's, I normally don't like threads because, well, synchronization problems. But this was a, a situation that, like, cried out for a producer and consumer threads and thread safe cues and co routining, and it was kind of fun to write. Um, so, perils of over engineering. If you ever find yourself in a situation where um, you've got custom web web framework and twisted and Django and most of your code is pretty reports for web pages. Something's gone badly wrong and you need to rethink. I question whether that's really over engineering. How did CIA start its life? Was it a bunch of student projects taped together? I don't actually know. I don't get that impression. <laughs> Okay. It seems to have been mostly the, the language mix makes it sound like that. Okay. The language mix makes it sound like it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, was there one developer or three on? Uh, I believe there was one initially. I mean, like a guy who uh, disappeared in 2007, apparently having been overwhelmed by the like um, over complexity of what he had created. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's some structure about this. I mean, was the point of CIA? to send notifications to IRC channels or to have the pretty reports. Because all you want to do is send notifications to IRC channels. I mean it's a it's a you know a commit hook in your you know you can write your favorite in your favorite language no, it isn't. Of code, isn't it? Aha, no it isn't, and here's why. Uh, the reason it has to be a service daemon with persistent state is because the things you have to do to maintain state to an IRC session are not tremendously complex, but they're non-trivial. And if you open a session and uh, send your message and then close a session to a certain... Oh, it reference. looks like it's just joining and leaving. Yeah, you're going okay, to yeah, flood the channel with commit spam. And server ops don't like that. <laughs> They'll ban you for doing stuff like that. So what the daemon is for is, uh, and the way it works is, there's the, the, the way my implementation works is there's a listener socket. I apply for an IANA port number. Uh, there's a listener socket, and what's watching for is JSON objects. I like JSON. Uh, and one attribute is, uh, is, the, uh, is the IRC URL, and the other attribute is the message. And internally what it's doing is it's saying, basically, um, have we seen this destination server before? If not, we'll start a new, we'll start a new internal robot thread to handle communications with this server. Uh, and at any given time, there are a bunch of parallel robot threads uh, running and their purpose is to minimize the amount, the amount of actual join-leave traffic to the set of channels that you're sending stuff to. That's why it has to be a, a persistent compute. Uh, yeah? Any recommendations for, let's say, an inherent application that's been overly engineered and refactoring isn't an option? How to approach it and kind of remove the over-engineering? That depends entirely on the politics of your situation. <laughs> Uh, it has, I mean, very little of, there's not much advice I can give you that would be of a purely technical nature. Uh, it depends entirely on how many people are invested in that, in that application and why. Uh, I mean, and generally it's pretty frightening. Uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a situation here where at least 
I can field Erker as an alternative to uh, CIA, and if uh, the way the way I, I expect it to be deployed is that uh, repository sites will start instances running, and then they'll make that port privately available to hooks from their repositories. So you, you may never actually see an instance of Erker that's um, that's publicly accessible, and in fact, maybe you shouldn't because it would be a great way to spam IRC channels while while masking your your IP address. Um, but the point is that multiple instances of this can be deployed decentralization, yay, uh, by different hosting sites, and they, each one of them will uh, take a piece of the notification job, uh, and that doesn't put me in direct political conflict with CIA people. Right. Um, and if this, the prospect of competition, there is a salvage group that is trying to uh, fix the CIA code base. I've given them a little help. I'll probably give them a bit more. Uh, and this will have one or two, one or two outcomes. Either it will light a fire under the salvage group because they have competition and they'll actually fix the thing, in which case it's all good. Or uh, the, the code will complete its collapse into rubble, at which point Berger will be an available alternative that's fairly easy to use, and that's good to do. Are you trying to get my attention? Any other questions about this? Yeah, what's uh, stopping you from, like, well, I guess nothing's stopping you. But um, you, you were talking earlier about how um, CIA has this overcomplication with web interface and all these other goodies. Why not depend on other applications for that portion? Like, for instance, Track has a really nice hook into SVN and other um, versioning systems where they provide that interface for you. And so with the commit message, you can just feed, output a URL to the track web interface while, while not even worrying about having to format anything. So essentially, you're just... How does that get you notification of the project or is it Well, no. I was saying for a more complete... I mean, for a more complete, like, commit message, I mean, if you have to cut it off for the message line. Well, that's what CIA already does that, in effect. One of the things that you give it in your XMLRPC, one of the things you're supposed to give it when you generate a message is a, uh, is a, is a browsable URL pointing at your source code at, at something like a... Oh, uh, so it's not actually generating the, view, the web view of no, the repository? No, Oh, okay. No, just a pointer to where you can get a web. Okay. I misunderstood that. Uh, but on the CIA site itself, it keeps all kinds of fairly useless statistics about the, the traffic that's passed through it. Uh, I think they're fairly useless anyway. The developers must have thought they were useful, but I don't know why. Um, so that more or less comes uh, to the end of my pre-prepared rant for the evening. There are a couple other things I can talk about. I, I, Designed my first hardware at this time. That's that's a good story. Um, but uh, I'll take questions. Ask me anything. ESR is here. Throw tomatoes. Whatever. <laughs> and I, I just um, I'm you're soliciting your comments on the state of Android. Given there's been a lot of activity, you know, like the Apple Samsung lawsuit, which um, uh, Apple won. And but I read the other day that. Android's getting 1.3 million activations per day. Right. Um, and they said something like 7% of all humans on Earth will have an Android phone by the end of next year. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the fundamental situ the fundamentals of the situation are here are don't get too distracted by the lawsuits uh, because um, Apple is in a very defensive position right now. That's a that's a, a, a difficult thing for a lot of people to process, given that they've got like the, the highest market cap company in the world. But they've got a problem. They're they they are a single company that is trying to fend off competition that is coming at them from all directions. Um, because the because the Android army isn't one company and isn't tied to any one strategy, Android vendors as a whole can place a lot more different bets, can make a, 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 lot, a lot more different design tries than Apple can. And 95% of those design efforts can fail but if even 5% of them serve Apple's market better than it does, Apple's um, So uh, that's why lawfare is essentially a defensive strategy in the long run. can't really get at Apple anywhere. What Apple um, needs to do in the longer term is the same kind of sideways shift that took it out of computers into smartphones. It needs to go into a market that, that uh, nobody else is competing with it in. Um, and I don't know what that market is. I mean, if I did, maybe I'd be more to start up. Uh, but um, don't, 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 don't cry for Android because there will not be the lawsuit. The fundamentals are still strongly in its favor. And those fundamentals are reflected in the fact that Android's worldwide, Android's market share relative to Apple continues to go up. It has to be moved. Yeah. What are the implications of open source for hacking democracy, given that the elections are obviously very much in the news right now? I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay. Um, a lot, there's a lot of, of a political undercurrents to open source, like at BossCon a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were some people demonstrating a wireless, you know, a laptop to laptop communication system which can't be shut down by an Egyptian ministry. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of interest in the political implications of open source in the open source community. Yeah, you guys all know how I got my second death threat. I'll tell that story later. Okay. It's related. Yeah, so, um, like, there are various tools for looking at things like um, the voter ID the photo voter ID law and so forth, and there are a lot of implications of open source for politics. Uh, and it, like, you know, so that was an open-ended, you know, comment on this if you feel like a question. Uh, well, I've been in the trenches myself. The way I got my second death row was, uh, I thought of this when you mentioned that uh, it was uh, back in 2009, I was working with a group of activists that were supplying um, covert communications channels through um, uh, Tor and, and encrypted web server communication to the dissidents in Iran and I was the above ground contact person. I, I got a I got a death threat from somebody who might have been an agent of the Iranian government. It felt like I was living in a in a, in a cyberpunk novel for a couple of weeks there. <laughs> Shadowy global conspiracies of techno freedom activists, threats from fanatical assassins. It was, it was fun if rather nerve wracking. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, um, been there, done that. Um, I think, um, I think, um, well, the way I think about this is that one of the effects of open source is to, 
the obvious and dumb thing to say would be democratize computing. But I, actually, I want to uh, put it more strongly than that and say anarchize computing. Like P2P DNS? Yeah, uh, right. And, and the difference between uh, democratizing computing and anarchizing computing is when you democratize something, you're implying collective mass action. But the, 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 one of the beauties of open source is that it doesn't just empower the mob of the weak, it empowers individuals to go out and do things they couldn't do for it. And it gives them information leverage that could formally only be wielded by, by corporations and governments. And that is the hopeful bottom line for a lot of this stuff. That uh, that because of the leverage we can get nowadays from technology and the internet, the, uh, the, the advantage of being gathered up in a mob versus being an individual will lessen. And that will be a good thing. That reminds me of, uh, forget the name of the application, but they're, they're basically coined as the open source competition to Facebook. Where it was like diaspora. Diaspora. yeah, diaspora. That that's what reminds me of dia diaspora. And I wish them every bit of luck. I don't know how well they're doing actually. How are they doing on their development? They're starting to open source them, so I think they've run out of funding. They, they, they just announced, I think, a week or two ago, that they're going to be turning everything over to the community, including the code base for the sites and everything, and also policy management. It's going to be like a year-long transition or something, but they're trying to be pretty hands-off in the future, which is a cool thing, but it might be related to the fact that they don't find it successful. It's fun to do that. Whatever that's worth. I wonder if they could... I wonder if they could squeeze any money out of their Kickstarter drive. That's, that's how they made their money. Yeah. <laughs> that's how they got it. They, they had quadrupled what they asked for. Oh, that's good. Right, it's probably the 50% fall in, in Facebook stock that led the investors to get a little nervous. Well, Zuckerberg actually gave them quite a bit of money to get that started. Really? Funny. <laughs> he said he just thought it was a good project. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope it wasn't Facebook stock. Um, so next. So in the election, I guess it was when George Bush, George W. Bush won against whomever. There was a lot of a lot of discussion about um, electronic voting and hanging sheds and all that kind of stuff, and and there was a movement towards electronic voting, and I haven't really heard anything about it. And That's this, because it's a really election. bad idea. Well, yeah, so comment, expand upon that and what the state of it is and uh, whether it's going anywhere, whether it's actually in use and we should be worried or whether it went nowhere and no one's using it. Uh, the real reason the reason that electronic voting is in general a very bad idea is because the, uh, the data that it renders is easy to untraceably use it. Um, there are ways to engineer around this problem. I've seen descriptions in the new voting system in Brazil where it works like this. Um, you vote electronically, and the voting machine prints out two copies of a receipt with a cryptographic um, signature on it. One of them is behind glass. You can't touch it. The other one drops into your hand. And the procedure is for you to check to make sure that the signatures on those receipts look identical, and then you take one receipt home. And later on, if they want to audit the vote, they go back to people and say, would you show us your receipts, people? And then they can 
cross-check the crypto codes on those against what's in the database. So with a sufficiently carefully designed system like that, you could do voting with decent verification. But uh, so far, uh, systems that are that well designed are very few and far between, and uh, the ones that are in production use are crackable to a, degree, to a degree that deeply frightens me and everyone else who's looked at them. So, uh, as they're implemented today, well, you know, maybe that one exception in Brazil, bad idea, don't go there. Too easy to crack. It's hard to imagine that, that Brazil thing working there. First of all, no one would save their receipts. People use their receipts. And I mean, people don't even want census takers coming to their house. They want election monitors to come to inspect their receipts. The tradition of secret ballot would um, would would foil that. However, ah, the fact that, the, the but the fact that you have choices. Yes. Right. It just has a it has a hash. Yeah. Okay. Right. And also, it could be voluntary. You could just say, "Hey, if you voted at precinct one twenty three, right, bring your receipts in. We're doing an audit. And the thing if is, you don't, if you don't want to show up, you don't have to show up. And the thing is, you don't have to get a complete set of all the receipts from a precinct." in order to affect, uh, detect hanky-panky. Above a certain density of retreats, any message will show. Yeah. The other thing is that the, the same system would allow a voter at home to go to a web page and punch in their... Oh, yeah, and verify that, and verify that their vote counted. counted. Oh. Good point. Well, I hadn't thought of that, but yes. Well, that's actually a good idea. Yeah. So... Can be done. Uh, it just, uh, uh, aside from that one example that I, that I read about, hasn't been done. There's a, a very deep objection to voting at home in that, uh, for instance, women might want to vote without their husband knowing who they voted for, and they can't secure privacy from a home vote. No, we're not talking about voting. Right, no, I understand that. We're thinking about electronic voting in general. Voting from home is very significant issues. Well, how do you know the receipt you're getting actually records what you voted? How do you know that not everybody got exactly the same signature? Well, that's an interesting question. For one thing, um, that's uh, part of the assurance in the system is the fact that you can see a duplicate of the same receipt that you get being printed, so you know that that information is part of the record. The other thing you can do is compare the hash on your receipt uh, against the person uh, who, who left the polling station. So you're seeing a running roll? And if the, if the machine's printing like, the same hash for quote, for every single person that votes, then you basically have 100% voter fraud and you don't get any chance. Yeah. Right. That would be easy to detect. Well, that's true. <laughs> and um, probably uh, the hash would, all, would have as one of its components the time of the vote. So, yes. Uh, real fast comment. 50% of the human population that was in this country came to the top of the law and went vote. Yes, but now we're talking about a different level of trouble. <laughs> Not appropriate for discussion here. Yes. I'm going to throw out a very, very diverging question. Um, what 
do you think the current state of the uh, free and open source movement is? Where are we right now, and where are we headed? I hate that question. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like somebody depressed, don't I? But, but, you know, I'm thinking back to the old days of the Cathedral of the Bazaar, and, and you know, people were doing things at home, and, and you know, uh, they were trying to, to write okay. stuff better than Microsoft. And now things are getting so corporate, and you got Google. Stop. Think about this. The most widely deployed, highest volume operating system, computer operating system on the planet is open source. Android. Oh, well, I'm thinking specifically in the Android area. But it is a fact of our current situation. It is an important fact with important implications that the most widely deployed, highest volume computer operating system in existence is open source. That is a fact that matters. And whenever you find yourself pining for the good old days, <laughs> contemplate the fact that the problems we have now are mostly the problems of success. And the problems of success are infinitely preferable to the problems of failure. <laughs> Does that statement include all versions of open source that was invented, that was fixed and controlled, or are we talking open source that is available to download, to be used in a public environment? No problem. The, uh, the Cell phone owners have actually been fairly good about making their source trees available eventually. There's typically a delay of a few months, but we do get them. Okay, so that's for the Android side itself. Yeah. Um, similar to that, we're getting to the point now where we have people who are just users of open source and not hackers. I'm actually kind of drifting into that mode myself. It makes me fearful sometimes. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, other than, you know, the obvious support market growing, um, where is this maturity going to take us? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Where do you think? <laughs> um, well, one thing that I, I, I personally have never lost sight of is that uh, open source is really not because of our idealism, but in an important sense in spite of it. We can have all the lofty goals and aims and plans in the world, but if it's the truth about human behavior that if the economic fundamentals don't favor you, what you're trying to do generally won't be sustainable and won't last. And the most important question that I asked 15 years ago and that I continued asking is, do the economic fundamentals of software development favor open source? And 15 years ago, I concluded that the answer was yes. And today, I still think the answer is yes. Uh, and that's why, despite occasional reverses, I continue to be confident that we're winning. I'd like to comment real quick on 
Um, basically, with the extreme growth in the user base, you also have a growth in the developer base. So with more people, yeah, you may, as far as the ratio goes of users versus developers developing open source, but since there's a wider array of people, there may be more numbers of developers as what, opposed to previous. One thing that I think a lot of open source developers um, don't appreciate today, today is how freaking huge our culture has become relative to where it was in the memory of those of us who have been around for a while. <laughs> there was, I, am, I have been doing open source before it had a name for long enough that I can remember when most of the hackers in the United States would have fit in this room. Yeah, because in the 1970s, the culture was that small. Now, think about the fact that, that the hacker culture in its modern manifestation is open source, the open source community has grown itself since the 1970s by easily four orders of magnitude, and that's kind of encouraging. I have to disagree with you about that. I consider the Atlantic City 1976 convention. Couldn't have everybody there in here. Which convention are you speaking of? Whose convention? Uh, it was the convention in Atlantic City of where, where the show the Apple first. It was July '76 in Atlantic City. Well, um, possible we're talking about different populations. No, but they every, almost everybody was a hacker. There was no way to do a computer without hacking. There was no way unless you were willing to spend millions of dollars. Hackers, but not open source. No, yeah, that's true. But yeah, you're talking we about were talking population. open source. When you're, when we've, I'm speaking of the hacker culture that was directly ancestral to today's open source movement. Yeah, but most of well, the claim was in '76, so everything was all hardware. People were giving away software. Well, um, one reason I believe the culture was that small back then was how it was part of it. <laughs> uh, at that time, it was possible to uh, be personally acquainted with pretty much everybody who mattered. It isn't anymore. Um, now, this is another thing that I was discussing with the, the same person that. Uh, I was talking with when the ground truth document concept came up. She was bothered by the fact that a lot of uh, younger hackers, actually hackers her age, she's 28, she's, she's bothered by the fact that the hackers she, she really respects are, are uh, 15 years older than she is. And she's worried that the level of uh, cluefulness among younger hackers is really terrible. And I was the person who had to say to her, it's always been like that. There's always a bell curve. The reason you think hackers were brighter back then is because of the selection effect. You are seeing the artifacts that survived. You're not seeing all the false starts in bad software. This is why 19th century literature is such higher quality than 20th century literature. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, the, the selection effect. Yeah. I'm thinking about your point about um, incorrect factoring of a design. Yeah. Um, I have 
the curfew, there's a wonderful example of trying to do too many things in one design from World War II again. The flying tank. <laughs> there was one actually built, and it flew very briefly. <laughs> the problem was that the so tank part of it kept it from flying well, and the flying part of it kept it from being having enough armor to be significant. So I, I recommend to all of you, if you can find it, there, there's a hilarious book called my tank is fight insane super weapons of World War II. And the guy who put this together, he just trawled the archives for all the completely nutso weapons concepts, some of which were built, some of which were half built, some of which never existed. Except this that was good, though, because they had all this money, there was an emergency, they were saying, Try anything, guys. You know, it's wide open. Anything, you know, we'll look at anything. We're desperate. Uh, and there, there were things like the, uh, the, the, the design for a, a super tank, a German super tank called the Mouse, uh, which, I mean, would, <laughs> it would literally be unable to go anywhere because it was so heavy it would, be, it would crush the roads underneath. It never got built because that kind of like rolling super fortress, you just take it out with air power. Or I wish there was a lot on the Russian problem. Right. Did they have the ship made out of ice in there? The Pikery ship? Yes. Another real extraordinary weapon, I think it was a little before World War II, was the circular battleship. Yes, the pop Yes. Yes, the pop uh, it would shoot equally badly in all directions. It would always be a little off-center. The battleship would begin to spin around. It was, it was called a Papa because it was the crazy, it was the brainchild of this crazed Russian admiral named Papa. He had too much political for anyone to stop him. It was just nuts. Uh, actually, the, the, the serious thing that I learned from that book that most in interested me is that the Nazis actually had primitive but functional infrared vision equipment that they used for night patrols. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 some of which was man-carryable and some of which is, was uh, mounted on tanks. And they even had specialized vehicles that were infrared spot, spotlights that could paint targets for the designators on their tanks. And the reason you, you, you all don't know about this is because that equipment was only deployed to the Eastern Front. No, you know, nobody ever saw it at the Normandy landings. So yeah, the, the, the Nazis had uh, if, uh, had IR night vision equipment. Who knew? Uh, okay. Anyway, that was fun. But next, would you be willing to say what your Linux distro of choice is and your desktop manager of choice? Oh, that's kind of painful for me at the moment. Um, I have been an Ubuntu user for some years. And I like it. I liked it because it minimized the amount of system administration I have to do, and I hate system administration. Um, unfortunately, I'm now kind of shopping for a new distro because of the the horror from beyond space, the the abomination, the the, the, the gigantic glowing turd is unity. Can't you just replace it with your favorite window manager? That, in fact, is what I have done. I'm running XFCE over Ubuntu. Uh, yeah. But there are various things about that where the integration isn't all that good. Uh, and there are some features I'm missing, uh, such as um, uh, 
Google media devices actually coming up as a file on the desktop. Doesn't seem to work reliably under SSD. So I want a distribution that is not using Unity uh, and is, is better integrated than, than Ubuntu is at the moment. Maybe they'll fix that problem, but I've been hearing good things about Mint. I might experiment with that. Yes. What was the name of that book you were talking about, Tanks? My tank is fight. <laughs> it's what? My fight. tank is fight. F I G H T? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. What was the first open source operating system to provide the source code and compile it? Well, that depends on some definitional questions. But some people would make the claim that uh, some very old IBM operating systems have that property. Yeah. Um, what was the original question? What was the first operating system where you could where you could where you could get your hands on the source and compile it and have a runnable instance? Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, what was the first one that somebody like us who didn't have a million dollar contract with an yeah. iron vendor? <laughs> oh, that, was, that probably would have been the original Slackware distribution in nineteen ninety three, which is Linux. Yeah, the original Unix. How about BSD? BSD. So why is this an interesting question? <laughs> <laughs> because BSD dates back to seventy to to the early seventies. No, well, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I know it. The early BSD tapes weren't actually runnable operating systems. They were they were patches on top of proprietary stuff. Um, the you couldn't actually run a BSD completely without uh, any proprietary stuff until the Taco release, which was the early nineties. I know 94 was when I had um, an early, early version of Linux running on my Amiga. So. Wow. On Amiga, that's impressive. Okay, next. 94, that's when I started using Linux too. <laughs> uh, uh, 20 years. Yeah. You told us about your second death threat. Is your first death threat interesting to tell? Oh, not really. Some random jihadi. He's <laughs> outside, by the way. I didn't really take the first one very seriously. The second one seemed a little more threatening. And in fact, I reported it to the FBI, and they took it seriously enough that, a, that an agent came out to interview me, sat at my kitchen table, and asked me questions. It turns out mainly what they wanted, they wanted to pump me for information about um, what was actually going on in Iran because they didn't have any good intel there. I had to tell them, sorry, I can't help you. As a matter of operational security, I am avoiding learning anything about the Iranian end of op our operation. I don't want to know because what I, what I, what I don't know, I can't tell anyone. <laughs> And not all people who want that information are as friendly as you, Mr. FBI agent. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I never thought that <coughs> advice would be quite so practical. Yes. Somebody on that same subject, somebody brought up uh, at FOSCON, there was a presentation on mesh networking and ad hoc wireless and things like that. We were talking earlier about your desire to anarchize the internet. Do you believe that wireless ad hoc mesh networking is something that has a viable future? Do you believe that, that would be a reasonable way to anarchize the internet? Uh, yes, in fact, I do. Um, there are various problems with it. Um, routing gets a lot more complicated in mesh potato land. Uh, and there's, a, there's, there's also a significant power distribution issue. You know, how do you keep all these nodes powered up all the time? But yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's a good direction for us to go in, I think. And there's a concept I ran into a couple of years back, which is just brilliant in its simplicity. And I'm, I'm so sad that I didn't think of it, I think of it myself. You want to make mashed potatoes and you want to make them cheap? <laughs> what do you think cell phones are for? Just buy up a bunch of used cell phones. <laughs> and uh, because the electronics is all there, all you have to do is come up with the right software load. Brilliant. I wish I'd thought of it. So, uh, next. Um, just your recommendations for further reading, podcasting, vodcasting. About what? Uh, hacking culture and keeping yourself in the game. <laughs> um, actually, I read an interesting book on this topic recently. Uh, in a week, I'm going to go to a, 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 a thing called CultureCon in New York, which is a conference on hacking cultures. It's organized by a guy named Daniel Mezik, who is an agile coach. This occupation I didn't actually know existed until uh, What he does is he goes into corporations and teaches them how to implement agile development practices internally. So the software development is something uh, And um, he's written a book called The Culture Game, which is about how to hack corporate culture so that they can do this stuff. And he's organized a, 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 a conference so that people can share ideas and techniques for changing the internal cultures of, of, of their corporations. And they invited me to speak there. Uh, he invited me to speak. He said, uh, how to become a hacker, as he described it as foundational wisdom. Uh, and it's going to be interesting for me to be there because what they're doing is it's kind of looking like the open source, uh, looking at the open source movement in a funhouse mirror. They're grappling with some of the, the same problems, but they're doing it in a, in a completely different political context. Uh, and so one of the things I can recommend is Daniel Mezik's book, The, the, the Culture Game. Uh, if you have any interest in agile development processes, um, uh, go off and read that. It's kind of interesting. What One of the... Uh tools that reinforces hierarchy and rigid cultural structures is our educational system. How can we hack that? Um, it's not clear that we're going to hack that because it's in the process of collapsing under its own weight. One of the bloggers I follow is uh, Glenn Reynolds, a.k.a. Estepundit. Some of you may have heard of it. And uh, one of the, the, the continuing topics on his blog is what he calls the higher education bubble, and how it is bursting. Um, we have, and some of the, there are some of the same problems at the K-12 level. 
And what he points out is that, um, let's see, I need to, uh, what's the one paragraph version of this? Um, higher education is undergoing, it has been undergoing in, intense cost inflation for the same reason that healthcare has been undergoing intense cost inflation. Government subsidies. Uh, in, in, in the case of higher education, it's things like um, uh, health grants and scholarship programs and that sort. The effect has been to decouple costs as they're perceived by the consumers of the education, the students and parents, from costs as they're received by the universities. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and whenever you have a situation like that, the producers take advantage of the of, of, uh, by gold plating their product, product and wildly inflating their cost base. And what's happening now is this means that increasingly um, uh, 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 secondary education in the U.S. is increasingly available only to people who are willing to take out loans that will cripple them financially for life. Uh, and and this is happening at the same time as the perceived value of college edu education is actually dropping. And Instapundit has been pointing out for years that this is that this is a classic picture of a bubble and that it's now bursting. So it's not clear that we have to hack the education system. It, it's in the process of, uh, as Karl Marx would have put it, being destroyed by its own internal population. But some alternative system needs to be built up before it collapses, or it will not have an option to switch over to the other traps. Why well, you are an optimist, aren't you? I choose university. <laughs> I choose university. Uh, in fact, that's what's developing now. If you look at places like uh, Khan Academy and some of uh, what the University of Phoenix is doing, the more innovative for-profit uh, um, universities are getting heavily into two things in particular. One is internet-mediated distance learning, and the other is uh, reorganizing uh, credit for courses around specific skill certs that you can then show employers rather than, you know, generalized, I have a degree in English. Uh, and that's a good thing because the skill certs are actually more reliable signals of what employers want than a Bachelor of Arts degree is these days. But that just seems like the normal um, and continuing professional education and why you, that, you know, they've always had you know, skill track certificates right. and open courseware, you know, is just, you know, so the way one, I'm getting through. One way that's one way to describe what's going on is that the is that the, uh, the, the scheduling and credentialing model that's been typical of continuing professional education is now increasingly encroaching on turf that used to belong to the universities. Oh. There's uh, actually some aggressive hacking going on uh, inside some of the universities. I saw a long article about a Harvard professor who was depressed by the fact that his students typically didn't remember anything from his course three months later, unless they were actually using it. He was teaching a physics or something. And he and a number of other people have done this, have inverted the usual learning model to where he has the social part of learning happen in the classroom and the reading and exercise happening outside of it. 
So you read the lecture notes before you go to class, and then you get into class and you talk with your, your fellow students, and TAs and so forth wander around helping you out. Because normally you've had like a lecture at the center, and then you talk to your friends outside of class, now he's having a discussion in the center, and you do the reading and so forth outside. It seems to me that would be very likely to work well for courses in which you can combine the social aspect with an actual lab or practical. Right. Um, with more, and this is definitely only a couple of professors, but the motivation was precisely the fact that uh, he was teaching physics, I think it was, and unless you were uh, tracking physics, unless you were actually a physics student, you didn't remember what you took in physics for politics. And you wanted right. to get memory going with you the next year. Uh -huh. And so he's now testing for that and looking at, actually, this, this is test-driven education, TDE, yeah. where, <laughs> where he's looking for how, do, how well do different teaching methodologies lead to retention a year later. Mm. Interesting. Very different perspective. We're putting metrics on education. And that would be the core of a hack of education. Because you can't optimize if you don't have a way to measure outcomes. Yeah. And for physics, you did. Yeah. It would be more difficult for some other subjects. But of course, most of those other subjects are much less valuable. <laughs> um, okay, next. Am I exhausted, everybody? <laughs> The CIA was the formerliest food in America. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know what they intended to stand for. I've never seen expansion of that particular Um But this makes me think maybe I should tell my story about hardware design. Yeah, okay, this is a good story about something that was sort of almost a culture. Um, one of the things I'm involved with these days is uh, a, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a group of engineers that's fighting a phenomenon called buffer bloat. How many of you have heard about this? Anybody? There is a, so I'll do a real quick summary. There is a problem at the foundation of the internet. Uh, all those dropouts that you're seeing in your videos, the crazy latency spikes, the, the uh, inconsistent performance, everybody thinks, Oh, the, the, the pipes aren't fat enough. Probably not. Um, some of us have been doing some analysis, and we think that the actual problem is bad queuing strategies in the routers. They are over-buffered. Uh, uh, and the effect of over-buffering is you have smooth traffic coming in one side of a router, and it gets turned into bursty traffic going out the other. Uh, multiply this by a couple of different stages, and suddenly, your internet is crazy chaotic with um, various segments of it swinging between zero utilization and 100% on really short time scales. This is not good. Um, so we have been, uh, and we think the, 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 the thing that's required to fix this is basically reducing the size of a lot of buffers so congestion, congestion notification starts working again. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that's how the analysis comes in. Uh, and also, um, better management strategies for the buffers. <coughs> so that's just sort of background. Um, 
And uh, I got recruited onto this effort by a guy named Dave Tott, who should be much better known than he is. He was one of the designers on the first uh, wireless, one space wireless router. He's done a lot of other cool stuff, too. Um, and the specific problem he wanted me to solve for them was this. Um, right now, we don't actually have any way to check for and monitor and test for the existence of these buffer bloat latency spikes that we can rely on. The reason we don't have any way to, to, to monitor for this is that we don't have any reliable way to measure the statistical distribution of packet propagation times on the internet. Now, some of you are probably thinking, we don't. Um, sure we do. We've got routers and we've got clocks. Whoa, stop right there. That's the problem. One of the effects of, uh, of, of buffer bloat latency spikes and these wild swings between 100% and 0% and, uh, and, and, and utilization is that it breaks the symmetry assumptions on which MTP is based. We can't rely on our clocks. MTP is one of the services that's probably being screwed with. It means that in order to do network monitoring that will enable us to identify if we're actually having this kind of congestion, which is the first step, to, and where we're at it, which is the first step to fixing it. We need to be able to do network tomography with clock uh, sources that are independent of NTP, which basically means we need a bunch of instrumented routers deployed all over the world, each one of which has something like an atomic clock hooked up to it, which all have a common time base so that we can actually measure packet delays and not have potentially screwed up NTP corrupting our, our figures. And what Dave came to me because uh, he knows that I do a lot of work with GPSs, which among other things you can use as precision time sources. And he thought, maybe Eric can solve our problem. And our problem is that atomic clocks are really expensive. Um, your least expensive grade of atomic clock is a thing called a GPS-conditioned rubidium oscillator which is just as expensive as it sounds. It's laboratory-grade equipment, and it's thousands of dollars a pop. And when you're talking about deploying um, hundreds of instrumented routers in, instrumented, in, in insecure locations, you can't do that. It's too expensive. It's too risky. So he said, OK, what can we do for a cheap time source? And I mean, GPS seemed like the obvious answer, but OK, now we get into a, a so good news, bad news uh, situations. The good news is GPSs are cheap. The bad news is cheap GPSs only give you uh, precision of time down to one second, which is a problem because the time scale of the events we want to monitor is 10 microseconds, that being the, the typical resolution on NTP clock time. Um, the um, the good news is some GPSs can deliver time at 50 nanosecond precision because there's this thing called a 1 PPS pulse, which is emitted at the top of every GPS section, uh, 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 second, which is precise to 50 nanoseconds. And that's more than good enough for doing network tomography when your typical feature size is 10 microseconds. The bad news is you can only get one PPS typically out of, an, uh, out of a, uh, a GPS with a serial interface, that is RS-232, because typically the way you propagate that sucker out is by putting it on the DCE line and, uh, and having the device driver on your, your host watching for a DCE pulse. 
And this is a problem because RS-232 interfaces are, at this point, almost dead. And it's very, very difficult to get your hands on a serial GPS that, that, uh, that, that does this, that has one GPS coming out to that pin. So uh, and when I got to that point, um, I started thinking, these days, it's all USB GPSs. And those are the only ones that are cheap enough to plug into a router and be disposable at volumes of 100. So can I find a USB GPS that is somehow carrying out the, this one PPS event where it can be seen. And I actually did find one. It was made by a, a, a small company called ZTI in Brittany, of all places. Uh, but I went to the, Northern, uh, the North American distributor, and they wanted $900 a unit, which besides being too expensive for, for our project, it's just obscene because I know the parts that go into those things. I know what's in a stock USB GPS, and it's 30 bucks worth of parts maximum. So that was just ridiculous. At that point, I started thinking, well, if I could, how, what, what's actually going on here? Let's actually look at the chip interfaces and see if there's any, any, anything we can do to get at this Pulse doesn't have to be an okay. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The the ground truth here, as it were, is that every GPS chip in the world uh, has out pins that uh, uh, that, uh, that a couple of them are for the RS232 interface that's delivering the, the sentences that you see if you look at what they output. And another one of the pins will be one PPS. But in your typical modern cheap GPS design, you know what that one PPS um, uh, pin is actually used for it. The only thing it's used for. You know that LED on your GPS that pulses once per second? <laughs> that pulse is accurate to 50 nanoseconds. <laughs> because it's being driven off the one PPS pin. In most GPSs, that's the only thing it's used for. Which is kind of like using an F-16 to deliver a newspaper. <laughs> uh, so I started thinking, okay, we know one PPS is coming out of all those chips. Is there any way that we can get at it through a USB interface? And then I looked at the pinout on your typical USB serial adapter, like a uh, prolific logic 2303. That's the most common single kind. I see that's not it. Some of you have dealt with these. And it turns out that the prolific 2303 and chips like it have DCD in pins. The next thing, wait, it has DCD in pin? What is it actually doing with this information? And it turns out that what's, what it's doing is it's setting an indication that the USB interface can see. Aha, now we're getting somewhere because that suggests that let's say you're USB interface is, is is polling your USB your USB hub is polling your USB device at uh, one megahertz. That means that I get to see the device and have it tell me if DCD has gone high um, once every millisecond. Sorry, once every microsecond. Once every microsecond. Is that good enough? Yes, that is good enough, actually. So if we could get the uh, if, if we could get our the precision of our clock 
down to the, the typical polling uh, uh, um, interval of the USB device, that would be good enough. So, so let's see, what would happen, let's look at the spec sheets and see what would happen if we just, took, to if we just took your box standard GPS device, which is a GPS chip with a, a 1 PPS pin and a couple other pins, hooked up to a USB serial interface uh, on a tiny little circuit board and like carried out to a connector. What would happen if we just took those two pins that are currently hanging out there doing nothing except lighting up an LED? What would happen if we took the one PPS pin and hooked it up to the VCD pin on the other chip? And I looked at the spec sheets and said, you know, you know, that actually looks like that actually looks like it might work. That actually looks like it might work. So then I went looking for a manufacturer, and I found one in Shenzhen, China, where there are all manner of OEM and ODM houses who would be delighted to take the specification that you give them for hardware and manufacture for and manufacture it for you. So I got in touch with these guys and said, "Look, here's what I'm trying to do, and I know that there's this, this there's this uh, there's this uh, GPS that you already make." Uh, and it's got a U-Block 6 chip in it, and it's got a PL2303 in it, and if you, like, connected these two pins on those things, good things would happen. And they said, that sounds really interesting. Let's try it. And they tried it, and it worked, and it's shipping. And uh, the actual point of this story is that until the prototype from, arrived from Navalot in the mail a couple of months ago. I had never touched any of the hardware that was used to make this thing. I managed, this is the world we live in today, I actually managed to design a novel product, a novel uh, uh, electronics product, by email with a bunch of guys in China never having touched any physical hardware at all. Is that you don't need to learn Blender. <laughs> I mean, isn't that cool? <laughs> we're, we're living on, we're living in, 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 in uh, William Gibson's time right now. It really is like that. Um, and the, the only fly in the ointment is we don't actually have a retailer for them in the U.S. You can buy them quantity one hundred for about thirty bucks each if you order order them from China. And Actually, this is a device with a lot of uses because before this, you had cheap time sources that weren't very good. You only looked out a second. Or you had these expensive laboratory grade things. But now that we've got something that does, uh, that, that does this level of precision, there are lots of things you can do for it. You can do with it. Um, one, uh, one application that I didn't realize until um, after I designed the thing was there are a lot of uh, places like oil refineries and military bases that do not want to have any ports open to the public at all. And they're really, they're, they're, they're really bothered by the fact that they have to have their NTP port open because they're afraid they might get cracked through it somehow. So one of the things you can do with these devices is you can sell these to people who run oil refineries and say, guess what? You can um, close your NTP port because you are now a tier one time source. Charge them fifteen hundred bucks. Charge them fifteen hundred bucks. Service contract. Yeah. So um, that, in its way, was a, was 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 uh, 
kind of a, a, a nifty intangible culture act. I mean, whoever heard of designing hardware without actually touching hardware? <laughs> well, I think it was kind of cool. What, what software do you need on the other side? Um, uh, to talk to the uh, to talk to the device. Well, as it happens, GPSD will do the device that will do the thing just fine. Because what GPSD can do is it's capable of watching for the DCD high event, and then it turns that into an event which is which it passes to MTPE through shared memory. So that that 50 uh, nanosecond accuracy pulse gets directly translated into a queue for your NTP demon, which can then use that information locally and also pass it on to other machines in the NTP cloud. So yeah, that part went. And actually, partly as a result of that, um, the guy who runs NTP uh, has booted up a service organization called the, uh, the Network Time Foundation. And uh, he's actually asked the GPSD project to join it. We're talking about that now. Time source is going to become a more important application for us in the future, I think. So, any questions? Yeah. Did, did, did you say, um, I think you, you also mentioned this story of the Java. I did, yes. Um, wasn't there something about a national security implication or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a guy who said, wait, you gave this design to the Chinese? The state, the, the NSA is going to put you in jail, dude. And he actually claimed that the uh, that there are some people in the federal government who are so zealous about dual use technologies that could be military that my one my one wire patch could land me in jail. Um, fortunately, there have been no you know, no goons show up on my doorstep as yet. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I should be more nervous about them or the Iranian assassins. <laughs> I'm actually thinking about this on the um, on, on you know past what you're going to learn um, and how much this problem of buffered spikes coming out of devices might be a router ecosystem problem that if we have over seventy percent, or however many it is, you know, you know, Cisco devices running and sending out this thing. How much of this is just going to come down to manufacturers issuing firmware patches? Oh, that's, that's the big problem. Um, actually, what, uh, the buffer load project has been uh, pushing several different lines of attack, and one of them is uh, some researchers affiliated with us have come up with a uh, much better buffer management strategy that they call Coddle. And one of the stories in the last several months is uh, we've actually succeeded in getting that into deployment in places like Cisco and Juniper. Uh, the, big, uh, the big router manufacturers actually have a clue about this. The difficult politics is actually at, in a different place. Um, buffer bloat is politically loaded because the telecoms companies have for years been getting all kinds of regulatory preferences out of the theory that there isn't enough infrastructure, there aren't enough pipes, we have to get subsidies and regulatory exemptions and all kinds of preferential treatment because there aren't enough pipes and there isn't enough infrastructure and the congestion out there is the proof. And we are the guys that are coming along saying, no, no, actually the build out is done. All we have to do is fix the frickin' software. 
this is very threatening to a lot of telecoms people. What's the what's the um, the line? Never try to educate someone whose income is dependent on their ignorance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where do you see video conferencing going? Um, why do I care? <laughs> um, I mean, Google Hangouts are kind of interesting, but they're more a stunt than anything else. Yeah, you're talking about time one in the network. That's, and you're talking about Tyler. That's yeah, well, latency spikes are a big problem when you're trying to do video conferencing, obviously. So, we'll fix after we fix the buffer flow problem, asking again. I, I heard that there's a blue and a red protocol that are getting into the kernel. Are they going to help her? Um, red is the name for one of the buffer man management algorithms that's um, been out there forever. And it's actually a problem rather than a solution. The reason it's a problem is that in order to work properly, it has to be tuned. And most system administrators do not have the knowledge base to tune it properly, so they either just leave it on its defaults or turn it off for nothing. Um, the great virtue of the new computing strategy, HODL, uh, is that it's completely self-tuning. So you can actually deploy it and then forget about it. Is that, that the blue? Blue is the one that... I don't know. Okay. I. I thought there was one that didn't require tuning that's That sounds like Coddle. It sounds like a tuning. Okay, Coddle. maybe. So, yeah, it's an interesting problem. And uh, my uh, Dave is actually coming to visit in about a week, and we're probably going to spend a week to, uh, together working on uh, what he calls the cosmic background buffer mode detector, which is his thing to field a bunch of routers all over the world, each one of them with a copy of, of one of my devices plugged into a serial port. And the whole thing will be a real-time monitoring network that will be watching for how packet latency is buried. And if we act, if we actually have a serious buffer flow problem, which we think we, well, we do, it's going to show up on that network, and we're going to be able to make lots of pretty graphs that we can then show people and actually get them to work. You're going to worry about the protocols on the networks? What was that? Are you going to worry about the protocols on the networks? I don't understand the question. <clears throat> Protocols on the networks. The run on a network that's run primarily in PLS, you shouldn't have problems with video traffic. Um, I don't understand where you're going with that. What we're well, looking if you at... run on a private network and you're running in PLS, you've got precedence for more packets. So they're going to go to certain buffers. They're going to go out first. You don't have to be precedence on that one. Um, maybe. Uh, we're, what we are looking at is specifically congestion effects, congestion effects of TCP/IP traffic. That is, and those effects are generic to a lot of different physical transports. They're going to happen anywhere that you have. No matter how good the, the pipe is, they're going to happen anywhere that you have over buffering and poor, poor queue management strategies. So the right answer is to say, on MPLS, you want to have a video conferencing problem. The, the responsive question is, on MPLS, are the buffer management strategies any better? And I don't know the answer to that question. You get ready for pizza? Uh, 
Is it time for pizza? Oh, my God. Hi, everybody. Sorry. Let's go have pizza. I got to run. Well, I hope you enjoyed that recording. I know I enjoyed being there. Please be sure to check out the show notes. You can also find links over at thetechiegeek.com. Again, thank you for listening and supporting HPR. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 License.